Uh, is this thing on? Can you hear me? Welcome to the Gravity Lift Podcast, a mostly entertaining and at times informative place where we get to chat about all the things we love. Music and festival life, yoga and wellness, travel and adventure. We are your hosts, Jordan and Antonella. Dr. Patty Shelton is a fantastic teacher, and we are so excited to have her joining our upcoming yoga training. She is local to the Seattle area with a bachelor's degree in neurobiology, a doctorate of medicine, and her book, The Yoga Doctor, which was published in 2015, is out on Amazon now, so you might want to go snatch that up. We really enjoyed this chat with Patty, talking a little bit about her retreats, her teaching of yoga, meditation, her book, juggling the life of being a writer and a teacher and a doctor alongside being a mom and a wife. So it was a really nice time to just chat with someone that I've known for a long time, but really haven't gotten to dig deep with. So we hope that you enjoyed this conversation too. All right. Welcome, everyone. Antonella here and Jordan. What's up? And we have a special guest with us today. Hello. Hi. So, Patty, how long have we known each other now? Oh, my gosh. Six years, probably? Maybe longer? I don't know. I don't even remember when I first met you, but I remember we were in a similar yoga world back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. I think we might have met at teacher training. Okay. Or at Balance Yoga, maybe? I don't know. Balance. I love Balance. I love that place. I miss it. (laughs) I miss it. And then you met Jordan probably a few years later? Yeah. Maybe one of the teacher trainings? I think. I think, yeah, it was teacher training for my teacher training. Did she come in and do the anatomy for you guys? That's a thing that I do. Yeah. (laughs) So we got a yogi friend here. Tell us a little bit about how your yoga path started. Where Where did that come from? Yeah. Well... My my path path like longer ago. Um, I studied neurobiology in college, and then I went to medical school, and you know became a doctor. Um, and then when I had my first baby, I left that world. I was really ready to leave that world. I was kind of using him as an excuse, like, oh, I'm going to leave to be with my baby. But it was more that the system, the medical system, was kind of toxic and not right for me. Um, so I left and I had no idea what was coming next. And then while I was pregnant with my second one, I was having the things you have, the back pain and stuff. And I decided to try yoga and see if that would help. And it totally did. And it was awesome. Um, so I kind of fell in love with it. And there was a little break after she was born because, you know, babies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, then I just started to do tons of yoga. Like I just dived in and it was almost every day going to yoga. Um, nice. So soon after that, it felt right to do teacher training. And um, it during that experience, it became clear that there was a need for people with expertise in the body and kind of the Western way to to bring that in to the yoga world. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started doing that kind of right after I finished teacher training, really. Um, and it became a lot of what I do, actually, yoga-wise. Do you recall what type of yoga you first started with? What style? Or you were pregnant, so was it prenatal? Yeah, yoga? it was prenatal at okay. first. And I I think what I would call it after that is like vinyasa. Mm-hmm. I, it's hard to define these terms sometimes. <laughs> like it's just yoga. Yeah, exactly. That's what I always say. It's all yoga. <laughs> all right. And then do you teach prenatal also? I, I teach like on prenatal. Yeah, I've okay. done I ended up doing a prenatal teacher training um in 2015, maybe something like that. Um, and starting to teach that as well. Um and I still do most of the classes that I teach are more 
slow flow, I guess I would call them. Mm -hmm. Um, And then yin, so like nice slow practices. I've tried teaching power vinyasa and like it just doesn't come out right. It comes out really slow. (laughs) So (laughs) I can practice that, but for whatever reason, that's not what wants to come through me. Um, So there's that. And then you have that healer, more nurturing side of you. So it makes sense that you would be drawn to a more... I don't know, less aggressive practice. Yeah, I'm all about helping people get to know their bodies. Mm-hmm. And all, all of what I teach is very um, individualized, very find what's right for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do a lot of meditation too. So like years ago, I found the Radiance Sutras, um, which is a really lovely text from thousands of years ago, but it's written for what they would call householders, like mm-hmm. people in the world. So it's meditation for those of us who are not in a monastery. Um and it's written very poetically. It's really beautiful, the translation. Um, and I kind of fell in love with that. And so I started down that path. And I've done teacher training um, with Lauren Roche, who did that translation, and also um, his wife, partner, Camille. We'll have um, to check that out. That's quite intriguing to me. It's really gorgeous. Radiant Sutras is my desert island book. If I could only have one, oh. that would totally be the one. So Okay. Write that down. <laughs> Jordan's gotten into meditation. We're recording a podcast, so we've got it recorded. You just re-listen. That's super helpful. Yeah, right. <laughs> so with um, the trainings now, so how many yoga trainings would you say that you kind of try to schedule in a year? You obviously are busy with all the other stuff you're doing, but you, as a resource to these trainings, you're kind of the doctor on call for all things anatomical. Are you trying to do a couple a year? Yeah, I do. Well, I have um, kind of at least four of them that happen per year. Um, But sometimes it'll be like I go to Portland for one and I just go for the weekend and kind of do an anatomy intensive for the whole weekend. Um, And then there's one that's local that I go for a couple hours. They have me come once a month and their program is like a year long. Um, So it really varies kind of in how people approach it. Yeah. What are some things that you've noticed uh, doing those types of trainings as far as yoga is obviously constantly changing, but are you noticing anything that needs to change as far as what you're offering or what you're teaching when it comes to the Western interpretation of the physical body in this practice? There's such a variety, like in how people view what yoga actually is. Um, And occasionally, like I've had, I had one yoga studio owner slash teacher who was like, you're totally missing the point. Yoga is not about the body. Like this whole anatomy thing is like missing the point of yoga. Um, And I do agree that yoga isn't only the body, but I don't necessarily agree that yoga does not involve the body. Um, (laughs) It's quite a big part of it, actually. So so there are some people who are kind of like, you know, I don't care, right, about the body. Like, I want to do something else. Um, But I think more people are open to the possibility that um, we don't have to be bound by, like, the rules that were written down Mm -hmm. about exactly how to do yoga, that each body might be different and kind of need its own alignment right so like a pose doesn't have an alignment a person has alignment or doesn't have alignment um so we want to be looking at it in a more sort of individualized way um that sometimes that blows people's minds because teachers who have been trained in the in some of the older systems like they have really rigid this is exactly how you do this pose and everyone does this pose exactly this way um and sometimes they've been trying to do a pose a certain way and it never felt right to them and they've struggled with it forever and then they learn maybe they just need to open like what it means to be in that pose a little bit Mm -hmm. like oh my god 
Now I love Warrior One. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of that with nutrition in general these days too, where people are like, oh, this is the nutritional guide that you should live by and it's perfect for everyone. And it's like, no, it's not. So I think that definitely rolls over to the yoga side of things too. Yeah, I think it's hard for people. Like the freedom to find what's right for you is awesome, but it's also kind of scary, I think, for some people because there's nobody who can hold your hand and say, this is what you should do. Yeah. <laughs> don't eat this or right. don't do that this way. And since yeah. time immemorial, right, we've wanted someone to come and say, like, these are the rules of life. If you follow them, everything will be fine. And, like, that's just kind of not how this works, this human thing. Well, as we <laughs> evolve, though, that evolves as well. Because I started in the Iyengar practice, which is very rigid, and this is how it's supposed to feel. And at the time, I think I needed that, even though it wasn't always accessible in my body. It was the type of mindset and practice that I needed. And then eventually, it was really easy for me to go, mm, actually, <laughs> doing the poses that way in these hips isn't going to happen. So I still want to practice and I don't want to hurt myself. And so how do I start to have more of that connection to what I actually need? So I think to people as as they progress in their practice and they start to see those opportunities of, oh yeah, I can, I can modify, I can adjust, I can change. And, and how to do so safely is what's so important and why we are super excited to have you be part of our 200 hour TT this year. I think, um, having a doctor come in that we've had doctors in the past, but I think a doctor who's also a yogi is really important so that you can, teach them all the Western important facts of the body, but then also have the yoga connection side of, okay, how do we make this actually work in our bodies? And then if we're going to take this a step further and go out and teach it, how do we see it in other people and how do we help them discover what their body needs? So. Yeah. And I mean, we hope that the way it goes is the way it went for you, where you realize at some point like those rigid alignment rules just aren't going to work for you as opposed to I'm going to force my body to do these things, mm -hmm. um, which I've unfortunately seen several people like yoga teacher friends who end up eventually breaking themselves. Right. Um, because yeah, what, they're what would like, you say is the most common injury that you see? Hips are really common and it's usually the labrum. Mm -hmm. um, so people like are forcing extreme movement of the hips and there's so much of that available in yoga like if you want to put your leg behind your head this is almost every hip is going to eventually get damaged from that um and that's kind of out there as a thing you should try to do right so labrums are really common yeah um low back too and like SI. the hyperextension mm -hmm. that people go into right yeah si and um the the discs in the mm -hmm. lumbar spine so the mm -hmm. lower part of the spine um there, yoga fetishizes like extreme movement certain forms of it do um and so people like really push it in those ways and damage those little structures yeah so we haven't read your book yet but is that kind of what the premise of your book the yoga doctor is about is that exploration or? yeah it was kind of it was born from all of the teacher trainings and the ways that sort of predictably like people were surprised by certain things or things that were helpful to them um and you know they said you should write this down because i need to tell my mom this or my sister, whoever is doing yoga in their life, right? Um, so yeah, I wrote it down. I made it into a book. Um, so yeah, it's kind of chapters on different parts of the body. So there's hips and knees and shoulders and all of these things. Um, and each one, we look at it, like there's a little bit of, you know, this is the structures that we're looking at. And then how would we feel in our bodies, the movements mm -hmm. and know what sensations are 
not safe? Like, what do you feel when you're getting close to an edge? Um, that means we just need to back off from that. Yeah. So you're a mom, a yoga, yoga, yoga practitioner, a yoga teacher, a doctor, and now an author. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So how is that? Because we keep saying that we got to write a book. Like I know it's on our bucket list of things to do. How was that process for you? Oh my gosh. I read this statistic that more than 80% of people say they're going to write a book one day and less than 1% of people actually ever write a book, right? Um, and I did for years. I was like, oh, I'd, I'll do it someday. Like that's a thing I'll do when I have time. And I just one day I realized like, I was never going to have time. Yeah. Probably till I retire. I don't even plan to retire. So I don't know. I was never going to have time. So I was like, all right, I'm just going to commit to doing this. And it it became this like big thing. It kind of took over the entire summer of 2015. But I wrote and, you know, got all the illustrations and all of that done in like two and a half months. What? That's actually really <laughs> fast. It, it's partially because it was organized already in a way because, you know, I'd done so many teacher trainings. Like, it wasn't new content for me. It was just changing its form, sort of. Um, so that's part of why it could go so fast. But I, it did, like, my kids were like, seriously, mom's working on her book again. <laughs> um, yeah, it took over everything. But I just kind of needed that to happen. Yeah. I, I just, like, and I gave myself a deadline, and I, like, made it so I couldn't wiggle out of my deadline. And then it was like, crap, I shouldn't have made it so quick. But... <laughs> I did already, so I have to do it. Um, yeah. How has it been received? Is this something that you would consider doing again? Is there a volume two or a new idea that you have brewing? There are so many ideas that I have brewing. Yes, I have more books that need to be written for sure. Um, and it it sells. Like every month I get a royalty check from Amazon from it. So like it's still selling. I'm doing virtually no marketing for it. Um, so people are finding it. I don't even totally know how. It is really cool when it's like, oh, someone in Ireland bought my book. I don't know anybody in Ireland. <laughs> Random person bought my book. And then they're like, you know, somebody in the world is reading your words and is like in communication with you in this cool, distant way. Um, yeah. I like that. We got to write a book. Someday. Yeah. <laughs> One of these when days. When you have time. <laughs> so, yeah, I think we should just do it. I think like she said I if we wait till we have enough time, it's never going to happen. Yeah. Just got to put it out there. Interesting. So the actual marketing aspect of all of this stuff is challenging. Like how do you market your TTs? How do you market your classes? How do you market your book? And I was just talking to someone today about um, becoming a yoga teacher. And she's like, I know that this is the path for me. I just want to be a yoga teacher. And I was like, uh, are you planning on having a career as a yoga teacher teaching in studios because I wouldn't recommend no, that. No, yeah, that doesn't work. Yeah, <laughs> But I like that you're doing all the things. And that's like something we've really been talking about is how can we keep expanding into different areas of what we're offering because just teaching asana classes in a studio a few days a week is, it's one, it's not fulfilling. And two, it's, it's really not the most effective way to get all of the awesomeness that you have out into the world. So I love that you're doing all of these different things. And you also added retreats into the mix, which is yes. pretty cool. So what do you have coming up this year? This year, I have Italy in like a month and a half, and then Morocco kind of in June. Um, have yeah. you been to either of those before? 
I've been to Italy, but not specifically where we're going, which is Sardinia. Um, and I developed a network of retreat leaders so that I can find places without having necessarily been to them. Um, so sometimes I'm going places that are totally new for me, which is really awesome. Dude, we need to get in on that network. Right? That was, that's our <laughs> challenge because we get a lot of people who are like, oh, plan a cool retreat. We want to go on a cool retreat, but we don't really feel confident or comfortable planning a retreat at a place we haven't been to. And so figuring out all those logistics is really hard. But if you have a network of people who've already done it and they know the good spots and um, the logistics, that's super helpful. It's totally helpful. Yeah. And you can look into like, you know, you know, yoga teachers, right? Mm -hmm. Some of them have led retreats, like right. you just start the conversation about where did you go? Did you like it? Yeah. Um, yeah. And like, I love planning travel, like all of our families travel. I plan, I don't use travel agents. Um, so that's my happy place. So I'm totally happy to do all of that, like logistical stuff. Do you usually do a couple a year? Yeah, I usually, I try to go for two, maybe three in a year. And that's kind of like the max that my small people can handle because they're still kind of small. Yeah. Mom being away. It's sad for them. Mm. It's, you know, it's sad for me too. But you get but. to bring back cool, cool gifts for them from other countries. Oh, yeah. Totally. We get excited. That was always my favorite thing as a kid. Present. <laughs> dad came home. What'd he bring? Yeah, Microsoft <laughs> dad. He went, he went to some cool spots. Yeah. Nice. Did you uh, do you have a favorite place that you've gone on a retreat or just in your own travels that you are a travel oh, bug? That is like the hardest question because I feel like it's like, what's your favorite fruit? Like, yeah. I like a lot of fruits. You know what I mean? They're all special in kind of their own ways. Um, I really loved Guatemala, actually. And we went way up into the highlands to Lake Arilan. Mm. Um, and it, it's just it's magical. I can't even describe the magic of it. Um we have not done that one. Do you have um, like a specific, I don't know, structure to the ones you have coming up? Are they very yoga-based or is there a few different elements to it? Is it mostly travel and vacation? There, it, It's a combination. And um, what people say they like about the way I do it is that we don't just stay in the retreat center the whole time. Um, so there'll usually be, there's always yoga every day. Um, often it's like we start with yoga in the morning, then we have breakfast and then we kind of like go out and have some adventures. Um, and then there'll be like meditation to kind of close out the day, something like that. Um, and you know, days vary. So sometimes yoga's in the afternoon or whatever. Um, yeah. It's always tough to try to sort out like if I'm going on a retreat do I want to do yoga and then just chill by the beach all day or do I want to go do yoga and then ride horses and then climb a mountain and then go kayaking and then do more yoga and go to bed so it's like for me I'm very like go 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 like when we went to New Zealand we were like let's go everywhere yep. let's do all the things totally but I don't think everyone else is like that they're like well if I'm gonna go to this like beautiful other country by the beach I might as well just like hang out there yeah. I try to give people a little bit of like downtime every day so they aren't completely exhausted yeah. but yeah like my tendency is to go like let's do everything because I mean as you've noticed I'm a person who likes to do all the things that I can do mm -hmm. yeah and having it optional is helpful I think because sometimes yeah some people just are going on a retreat to get away from their busy life so they don't want an overly scheduled day and having an option to go explore is great, but other other times they just want to chill. And 
I know um, some of the retreats we've done, we've had a few people who are like, you know, I'm just going to go off over here and read my book and close my eyes and do my thing. And then you have this moment as a retreat leader of like, oh, no, are they not having fun? Yeah. Am, I, am I doing something wrong? Should I kind of make it better? And we're like, no, this is what they want. This is what they need. Yeah. And sometimes somebody just like we had one lady in Costa Rica who was like, I'm just going to get a, four hours of massage in a row instead. <laughs> and I'm like, OK, yeah. you do you. Right. <laughs> it's hard to say no to that. I'm down. We should have done that in Bali, just four straight out. <laughs> we definitely took advantage of the inexpensive massages while we were there, but we were also doing like 10 hours of yoga a day. So we didn't have four hours off. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a necessity. And you like really needed massage. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. So when you go out of town for these types of retreats, your kiddos are how old again? They are eight and 11. And they stay home with dad? They do. Yeah. yeah. And do they do yoga with you at all? Um, my older one is sort of in a phase of like not thinking yoga is cool, but my little one totally yogas with me. Um, she loves to come and I sometimes I teach like mommy baby classes or something and she'll come with me and she'll be my assistant Yay. doing little classes or kid yoga. Um, I don't teach a lot of kid yoga anymore, but if I do, she comes and she helps. So Yay. cute. She's like just not quite old enough to dig a complete adult yoga class and like be fine with that. She's getting there though. Yeah, and you got kind of got to let them go into their sort of teenager mode of like, meh, if my parents think it's cool, I don't think it's cool yep. kind of thing. <laughs> They'll come back around for sure because my oldest is now in college and a lot of her friends are really eyeing what we're doing and they're showing up to stuff. They're super excited about it and she's kind of coming back around to like, oh, yeah. I guess I like this yoga thing where when they were younger, they were all about it. They would come to my classes regularly and and now they're kind of in this like, hmm, I don't know if it's my thing. It's part of the identity thing. Like I think you sort of have to push away from your parents to go like, is this something I only like because they like it or is this something that I like for myself? And so you have to like do that. They have to have that process. Yeah, I think that's pretty similar to like yoga in general. We were talking about a specific style where someone says, you know, you need to do this anatomically this way. But I think it's very similar to the yogi lifestyle of like, how do you come into it finding your specific thing and then kind of branch out and be like, well, this was my teacher. So I feel like I should do it this way. But then you're like, but that doesn't work for my body or really make me happy. So I'm going to try this <laughs> other one. Yeah. It's interesting trying to find your identity because we kind of attribute that to being a kid and like, all right, now I'm trying to find my identity. But I feel like we're always trying to find our identity. It's uh, yeah. constant struggle. And then like the, there's this myth almost that there's you'll find your passion and then you'll just want to do the same thing like every day until you die. And that's not like humans are in constant evolution. Like humans are always growing. Hopefully. Yeah. So like we should leave the door open for like, you know, constantly like finding new things to explore and new ways to be in the world and like letting yourself change. Yeah. Yeah. It concerns me when. People seem stagnant. I'm like, oof, come on. Keep moving. Keep right? looking. Keep trying new things. I do not think I could live the same day for 40 years and, like, you know, be okay with that, right? That It's so common. People kind of live the same life. It, their life is, like, pre-lived, right? It's exactly the same. And then one day they retire, and that's sort of pre-lived, too. But then they're like, okay, now I don't know what to do with myself. Yeah. Yeah, that's where I love, I mean, in, in its own form, science and the ability to access tons of different things and people's perceptions like we're saying about nutrition or about yoga are always changing. Um, I bet you've seen a lot of change in kind of 
neurobiology from the time you were in school. Oh, for now. sure. Yeah. And I mean, it's huge in nutrition, right? There's like saturated fat will kill you. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, saturated fat is awesome for you. Like there's so much, you know, just change. And I think sometimes some people will go, oh, I can't trust nutrition because it's always changing. But like you couldn't trust it if it refused to be always changing. Like you have to open those doors. Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine if all the rules were the same as they were 50 years ago? That would that would raise some red flags. That sounds bad. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. I would hope that we've learned more and come up with some new ideas. And it does make it a little bit um, hard, I think, for the younger, more vulnerable student who's looking up to their teacher or their doctor or their personal trainer as like the person who's going to fix them and the person who's going to tell them all the right things. And then they're going to obey all those quote unquote rules and then their life is going to get better. And um I think that's a lot of like why we try to teach, but we also try to teach from a place of this is what I know, but you know a lot too. So yes. use these things to help access what you know, and then let me know what you discover and make this more of a collaborative effort rather than um, a dictatorship or a guru type of situation, right? Where it's um, helping them access their internal teacher. Um, and so much of that is, I think, through meditation, which we really try to have in every class and every training. And um, I know that Jordan has really enjoyed going down that path recently. Yeah. As far as meditation goes, is there is there anything in that science world that has shifted um, from meditation teacher's perspective that you feel has either been beneficial or influential? I, I think like... There's been a lot of research into meditation, but without a very good definition of what that is. Um, so it's hard to know what to do with it a little bit. Um, and there's like certain styles that have gotten a lot of research and certain ones that haven't, right? Which doesn't mean necessarily that they aren't as good, but just no one's put that into the research. So it's hard to know what to do with that. But there is a lot more um, awareness of it. Even in the last like five years, suddenly, Every single person is like, oh, yeah, I know I should meditate or I already do. Um, Though they don't always know exactly what they mean by that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I mean, it sounds weird to bring up social media, but I made a social media post recently about the difference between meditation and mindfulness. And people like think they're different things, but their mindfulness is just a form of meditation. Um, So is there any type of meditation that seems to work well for you and obviously it's different for everyone so it's not like a, oh this is the best type of meditation but yeah what and seems I mean to be yours? it's different daily so yeah. I like check in with what I need um sometimes I need moving meditation so it sort of looks like dance right but it'll be like moving through some type of an energy um and sometimes I need complete stillness like sometimes I need to lay face down on the earth for 20 minutes right um it really varies a lot. I, I love to have some sensory things that are grounding for me sometimes. So like particular scents, like some lavender or something that can like help me drop in. Um, different things work for different people. Yeah. Is there any that you really hope that there would be more science behind? Like someone would do more research on a specific type? Because there's, there's ones that people seem to know of well, like transcendental meditation or like we said, mindfulness. Yeah, I I would love to see more like the what meditation means opened up a little bit. So like what would happen if people did movement meditations like or moving meditations? Um, What would happen if 
people could use music as a meditation or smell or taste, whatever it might be. Um, Again, moving yeah. away some, from some of the rigid ideas of what what it looks like. Yes. And there's so many people, like if they sit in lotus pose for three hours, something is going to break in their body. And we don't want them to think that's what they have to be doing to be doing it right. Yeah, yeah. there seems to be kind of this dogma and meditation of like you have to sit and tell yourself that the pain doesn't matter and you just have to live with it and be okay. But it seems to be that, you know, in your physical body, if you can't sit in that one spot or you're going to get lower back pain from sitting here for too long. Cause, uh, I think one thing that happens to me a lot and I think is very, uh, rampant these days is all or nothing. So oh, totally. I'm going to meditate and I'm going to meditate 30 minutes a day. I'm going to start now. Yeah. And they don't ramp themselves into it and then they get hurt somehow. And then they're like, I don't want to meditate anymore. Right? I mean, or they're just like, you know, their back starts hurting and then your entire meditation is like this. Oh my God, my back. I don't think about your back hurting. You're not mm-hmm. supposed to be thinking, but it really, really hurts. Like, what's the point of that? Why are you doing that for 20 minutes? Just yeah. lay down and then <laughs> lay move down on. And be comfortable. Right? Yeah. You, it's okay to do it a different way. And like, there's also the whole, um, you shouldn't be having any thoughts. Having thoughts is bad thing. When like the nature of a human mind body system is thoughts like that's what it's literally for and they're going to come in um and the mind body system sometimes it loves to rehearse things that are coming or it loves to go back over things that have happened while it's in a calm state to like emotionally decharge it a little bit so that's a process that we don't want to block we don't want to not let it happen um and sometimes when you're in that quiet place different emotional stuff will come up for people um and sometimes it's really intense stuff right then they you've seen this in yoga they're really pissed off or like, or they're crying or stuff will happen where they're like, oh, this is for no apparent reason. But the reason is that you gave your system the space to bring these things up and to integrate and heal things that would otherwise just be walled off and separated. Um, so I think we don't want to teach people that that's bad when that process is going on or that they're doing it wrong. Because then a lot of people go, I'm quitting meditation. I can't clear my mind. It just doesn't happen. Yeah, my mind won't be quiet. I'm not good at it or I'm not able to do it. It's like, no, that's all right if your mind's not quiet. It's it's the observance of it. It's being able to step outside of it and see it and 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 let whatever's happening happen in a way yes. rather than trying to force it or contain it. Uh, are you still teaching meditation? Do you have any like weekly classes or anything? It, they're not regular. They happen sort of randomly when I schedule them. Um, Salt Minarium is my totally favorite place to teach those things because um, it's such a really beautiful space. It's so beautiful. And the first time we went in there, we were like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I think everybody pretty much has that response. And then it's it's easier to drop in when you have that around you, right? It feels... Like so easier for, to let go. For those that don't know, it's literally a room made of a bunch of blocks of Himalayan salt. Yes. It's just it's giant epic. blocks of salt that are like bricks to build yeah. up an entire room. And it's all the floor too, right? The floor too. Yeah. And yeah. so they're just like these big sort of salt crystals and there's like lights behind them so you can see the beautiful crystals. Yeah. We really originally awesome. went because I was dealing with a lot of sinus issues and it helped so much to be able to sit in there and close my eyes and breathe and... Um, yeah, it's pretty magical. Yeah. So in terms of meditation classes, um, I've definitely noticed that it's not super easy to find them. Um, and I think part of that is the rise of apps, like an app on your phone. Um, I have a couple of those and I want to know what your thought was 
on using an app versus kind of an in space where you're surrounded by a bunch of other people doing the same thing. I mean, I, they both have their place, but I, th I think it is, especially when you're just starting out with this, it's really helpful to be in a room of people because there's, there's an energetic thing that happens in that group. Um, and often that can be really helpful. It's also helpful to have someone to talk to when you're like, oh, this thing that happened to me, was that normal? Like, uh, should, how should I deal with that? Because um, people might not know, like, yeah, really intense things might come up for you and, you know, they might not know what to do with that experience. Um, and yeah, it's interesting that there aren't more meditation classes around. If there are any, they're in yoga studios and they're almost always like yoga plus meditation. Yeah. It's kind of rare that they're just meditation classes. There right. should be more. Yeah, I think there's definitely places that are for meditation practices, right, and temples and different areas where you can go take them specifically. But in the actual mainstream yoga world, it's pretty hard to find. Yeah, I'd yeah. like to see studios add in, like, they'll do an hour and 15-minute class and then have, you know, like a 30-minute break between classes and the next class. Like, what if studios just started adding an extra 15 minutes in between so you could have a 20-minute meditation? That'd be awesome. Like, I think I think one of the hardest things about meditation is um, getting a quiet space where no one is coming and going. Yes. And I know as managing a studio for a while, it was tough when you knew people were going to be in Shavasana and then all of a sudden people are coming through the door. They're talking yep. super loud at the desk <laughs> and you're like, Shh, we're trying to meditate in there. <laughs> so yeah, I think that'd be a tough thing is finding a space that is quiet. And I think that's where the salt mine place is awesome because you're fully insulated in this room of salt. Yes. Yeah. And it, it is like acoustically really, you know, it softens everything, right? You don't get outdoor noise in there. Um, yeah. And I teach actually a lot of private groups in there. So sometimes it's just one person, but usually it's like a small a family or like a group of coworkers. Yeah. Um, and they come and they have a meditation class in there for an hour. And it's awesome. I like that. You might have to set yeah, that up. Yeah. I didn't know that was an option. <laughs> yeah. Good to know. Yeah, cool. we sometimes do yoga in there too, but it like the space really lends itself to meditation. I feel like stillness it just really lends itself to stillness. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those places where you just zone out. I feel like it's yin great. could be really nice in there too. Mm. Do yin in a meditation because then you're not like moving around a bunch and you get to. Yeah, but they have those super comfy chairs. True, where you can just lay back. They lay are the back. best chairs ever. <laughs> <laughs> have you tried an isolation tank? Speaking of yes, salt. I love float tanks. They are wonderful. Yeah. And I, they are, I feel like an intermediate practice. Like I wouldn't do my very first meditation ever in there. I have seen people occasionally like kind of freak out because um, it can be intense at first and a whole hour of just by yourself. Maybe it's too much to start with. But once you're prepared for that, oh my gosh, they're perfect. Yeah. It's really been pretty amazing. Cause I know for myself, the physical body is the biggest challenge that I have in meditating and there's times where, sure, I can lie down on my back and meditate instead, but and I tend to fall asleep. So <laughs> I, I do a little bit better if I'm sitting upright, but then my hips start to scream at me and my low back starts to hurt versus for some reason in a float tank, I rarely fall asleep. I rarely even close my eyes, even though it's dark and, you know, I can't feel anything or hear anything. Um, I don't know. I just go... I go pretty deep pretty quick. And the first time that we did a float tank, I was like, oh, this is where I can go in meditation. <laughs> it took me to a much further than than I can normally get on land. I guess that's more on sea. Yeah, it's super <laughs> interesting to think about uh, like what Patty was saying about doing an isolation tank seems to be really intense for people for the first time. 
but going to like the salt mine, is it Arium or Arium? Arium. Salt yeah. mine Arium. <laughs> to go there, you're getting a bunch of salt mm-hmm. and you're in a room with other people. So it's a good intermediate space before you actually go and do a float tank where you're completely isolated away from everything in thousands of pounds of salt. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's like prep for it. They go they go fairly well together, I would say. Yeah. I, I I feel like I foresee a collaboration in the works. Ooh, yes. We should talk about Definitely. doing some sort of a I don't know. Flow tanks are very like the type of salt that they use in a flow tank is magnesium. So um it's really, really relaxing. And like on sort of the body physical level, when your skin is wet and warm and immersed in that magnesium for so long, you do absorb some of that through your skin. Um, and magnesium is good for relaxation. So, And that's what I think is kind of the most important thing of it for me and the easiest thing for me to tout to other people is that like, even if meditation isn't in your practice and like, you know, whatever someone considers meditation with their predefined definition or your predetermined definition um, is the physical benefits that come from lying in a bed of magnesium. Yes. Like even if you don't like find yourself meditating or you end up falling asleep, you still get all these physical benefits of feeling great. And I think that's super important relaxation because in a world of stress, meditation is touted as the best way to deal with that. But I think it's also nice to incorporate that with some other physical aspect. So instead of just sitting in your room meditating, you get to add in this salt in either way or a group of people. So and it might be it's helpful in a way to like it defines the time for you, like defines the space. Because if you're at home and you're meditating, it's easy to be going like, I wonder if it's been 10 minutes yet. Yeah. I'm not sure. Like I really, I really need to get all these things done. I can't spend too long doing this. I'm kind of wasting time. Um, but if you're like, if you're in something that's a predefined little yeah. space, it's really helpful. That's for that. where at home I have to use a timer or an app. I have to. Otherwise, I do fixate on how much time has passed versus if I know, all right, this little chime is going to go off after 10 minutes or 30 minutes, then I can let go of what time it is and just be present and yeah, so I think even if you're practicing at home without a predetermined time, like make it, <laughs> set it. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. Yeah. Otherwise, it's always like, I want to check the clock. I'm not supposed to, but I really want to know how long it's been. Oh my God, it's only been two minutes. How did that happen? Yeah. <laughs> That's the worst. <laughs> what? It's only been two minutes. <laughs> I think sometimes people are intimidated by meditation too. So, like, maybe it's why it's not in studio schedules more, is like if you say, this is a 45-minute meditation class. People are like, oh, my God, I cannot just sit still and quiet for 45 minutes. Um, so it's like if we can open up what that means a little more and even offer, like you said, 20-minute experiences, mm-hmm. um, yeah. it might help a lot. Well, I think it'd also be cool to, I don't know, incorporate the word breathing somehow because people understand breathing. Everyone breathes. Yes. So it's like I think people get this idea that meditation is you know, something that uh, these ancient sadhus do in the mountains of in the Himalayas yeah. and that's all they do is sit there for their entire lives and meditate. It's like, no, I mean, just close your eyes and breathe. Yes. You can just close your eyes and breathe. Like yeah. You're doing a certain form of meditation. Um, and I think that breath work is super relaxing. And I read an article of yours um, talking about the vagus nerve. Nice. And its connection, um, well, specifically to the colon, since I have ulcerative colitis, that's where <laughs> it got intriguing to me. But it was um, the idea of breathing to calm everything down. And so on a scientific level, um, I guess I kind of wanted to hear your thoughts on the science behind that. 
Yeah, well, it's a two-way street. So the vagus nerve, um, for anyone who's not familiar with it, is kind of the main nerve through which the brain communicates kind of relaxation responses to all of the organs or most of the organs. Um, so it's active when you're in a nice, calm state. And one of the things that will happen when you're feeling calm and relaxed is your breathing will naturally be slower and deeper. And when you get nervous or scared of something, you, it speeds up and gets shallower. Um, so like if you're calm and relaxed, your brain will tell your body to breathe slower and deeper. But the nerve is a two-way street. So if you breathe slower and deeper on purpose, the brain receives the information that that's what's happening, right? And goes, oh, I must be calm and relaxed because my body's acting calm and relaxed. So you, that it's, it's the door. Breathing is really cool because it's, it's an involuntary thing that you can take over voluntarily, which you can't directly do with almost everything else in your body that's involuntary. Um, you can kind of control it indirectly, but not, you can't just go, I think 75 beats a minute for my heart is good right now. <laughs> uh, seven, 72. 72. Um, but you can do that with your breath. You don't have to, which is good, but you can, right? And so it's like this door into all of those responses. Do you think that's on purpose? Do you think that we are set up in that way as like when you access, when you notice that you have this tool, you can affect change? Yeah, I mean, I think it's useful for yeah. humans. Uh, humans, like we have an instinct towards meditation. Maybe animals do too. It's hard to say. Like there are monkeys that will act meditative at certain times too. But humans all slip into it at various times on their own. And it can be with breathing. But if you are looking like out at a mountain vista or you're on the beach at sunset or you're holding your newborn baby, like you will automatically go into meditation. It's an instinct that we have. So it's just how do we make that more deliberate and like learn to open that door on purpose instead of just waiting to happen to go there on our own or feeling forced into it because life is making us crazy or our health <laughs> is screwed up and we're like oh okay this is gonna be my band-aid I'm gonna fix it so yeah, right or even like oh Tim Ferriss said if I want to <laughs> perform at a high level I have to meditate so I guess I better but I don't even know what that means <laughs> right yeah yeah has it how do you feel how has it helped your ulcerative colitis and you think it's really made a difference or the breathing aspect versus like meditation or both? Yeah, I definitely think it's helped. I mean, and that's where I'd say yoga in general is what has helped. And doctors were telling me to do yoga and that's the whole reason I got into yoga was because doctors were like, hey, you have ulcerative colitis, you need to chill out. Like, yoga <laughs> might help you chill. Um, and so the breath work was definitely the thing I found the most helpful in the beginning. Um, but then it's like, how do I take that to the next level? And that's mm -hmm. where meditation has definitely helped. Um, yeah, it's hard because like you said, everything's different for everyone. And it's hard to have this, you know, checklist of like, oh, I'm, I, I guess more of like a journal. It's like, oh, I'm feeling 75% today. I'm feeling 82% <laughs> today. Yeah. Like my body's this way. Like it's really hard to, to analyze your body. And I think that's where meditation really helps is that it gives you this chance to shut off all the external stimulus and just feel. Um, and that feeling has helped a lot in, in more ways than just uh, my stomach. I mean, there's other things wrong with my body and the, I guess wrong is the tough way to say it, but there are things that are going on with chronic inflammation. And so that inflammation extends far beyond just my intestines. Um, and so that inflammation seems to 
um, dim significantly when I am able to meditate because it calms the brain from overanalyzing. I love that. Yeah. And like that time to tune into your body is really important because I know so many people who have basically no idea what's happening in their bodies. And like, you know, that was me in medical school, right? I taught myself not to know when I was hungry or when I was tired because most of the time I wasn't like allowed to do what I would need to do about that anyways, right? It's like, well, you're not going to get to eat anyways. So you may as well not know if you're hungry or not hungry. Um, But then it took a long time to like relearn how do I know if I need freaking food? Like, it doesn't seem like you should be able to not notice that. But a lot of us, I think, have trained ourselves to not notice the body because we're so busy that we don't really have time to deal with it anyway. So we just tune it out. Funny, mine's the exact opposite. <laughs> so food, like, food, my food, brain food. is always like food. And I, I like haven't still over after all these years, what, uh, when was I diagnosed? Uh, 12 years ago? I still haven't fully differentiated the difference between my stomach hurting or me being hungry. Ah. And so it's this really tough distinction of like, oh, my stomach kind of hurts. Like, wait, am I hungry? I think I'm hungry. And then I go eat more food. And nice. so mine's the opposite, but it's still But do you think same. there's any correlation with the fact that your body has a really hard time absorbing nutrients? So maybe it is your body saying, give me more nutrients? Well, I think it's a tough thing between nutrients and digestion because mm. nutrients, sure, but I think also digestion-wise is the body's like overly working. Mm-hmm. And so when the body is overly working, plus it's inflamed, then it just starts to push itself more and more and more. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, yeah, sure, I need more nutrients, but you're just going to cause more chronic inflammation by having to make your digestive system work harder. Constant, yeah. yeah. Interesting. <laughs> it's fun. Well, what about, I want to circle back to her book really quick because you've been dealing with all sorts of stuff in your body. Like yoga is so good for this guy, but at the same time, he is kind of all or nothing. And so he'll tend to get these flare ups in the joints. Um, And we figured out some of it through alignment, but do you have any like key suggestions for people so that they can have a long and and fruitful yoga practice, any any tips that you would uh, be able to give our listeners as a takeaway? It could, that is so common because we're Americans and we like to win things yeah. and we like to win yoga. I we win. really want to win yoga, right? Um, so like the overarching tip under all of them is like, don't worry about winning yoga because um, yoga looks different for everyone. Um, I think a big one people struggle with is hips and there's a lot of, you know, really pushing mobility in the hips in yoga. Um, where the hip joint itself actually is, is kind of in the front of your groin. So what, if I ask people, like, point to your hips, they almost never point there. They point to, like, their hip, the crest, their hip right. bones on the outside. Um, but they usually don't point there. But so what we're feeling for in a lot of yoga poses is squeezing there in those hip joints or any joints, really. Um, when you start to feel like the joint is crowded or like something is is pinching, that's usually a sign that you're squeezing soft tissue and we really don't want to be doing that. Mm. Um, and that can be also shoulders and certain like different disciplines, you know, types of yoga kind of approach the shoulders differently, but some of them really push in the same way on the shoulders as on the hips. Um, and both the hips and the shoulders have kind of a rim of cartilage called the labrum and it gets pinched when we're pulling the joint all the way to the end of its range of motion. So we want to be feeling for that crowding or pinching and kind of backing off from that a little bit. Are there any uh, any specific poses to watch out for that you would say most commonly? It really depends on people, but um, things like pigeon 
where it's a lot of external rotation, we want to be feeling for that pinching and making sure we're not asking more of the hip than it can do. Mm-hmm. Um, with the shoulders, the gomukhasana arms. So I, I can't like show you guys mm-hmm. I'm doing it right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when we're trying to kind of really push the limits of the shoulders mobility um, or the one where you're laying on the floor with your arm out and you're mm-hmm. kind of like rolling your back towards your shoulder. Right. That's one where it's really easy to go too far. And the more you're adding gravity into this problem, like your weight is trying to push you in deeper. That makes it harder to yeah. you know, stay in that healthy range. Well, gravity makes me think about the acro aspect. So have you done any partner yoga? Yes. Yoga? My husband and I did acro for years. Like nice. we sort of have like fallen out of it a little bit. Um, he's not professionally a yogi, but we play with it. We should play sometime. Yes. Have you noticed any of those issues as far as just observing flyer and base when you're adding gravity into some of these air asanas? Any, any specifics that we should watch out for that you know of? It's all the same kind of things. Mm-hmm. Like the both of you want to be watching out for your joints, but the one of you that's more likely to go to the end of your range is the flyer, mm-hmm. right? Bases are almost always like there's there's just less demand on your range of motion, mm-hmm. more on your strength. Yeah. Um, so you just want to be feeling in your joints and making sure nothing feels pinchy or squeezy. Interesting. The pinchy and squeezy mm-hmm. is something I don't know that I've really connected to a lot. If anything, I feel an obvious end point, like, oh, that's the end. Can't go any further there. My joints are like really obvious in that. And so then I know to back off a little bit from there. Um, When you go into like this standard half pigeon, um, would you say that it's better to have the heel in and have less of an angle at the knee? Or would you say it's better to have the foot forward and more of the shin parallel and then you're up on blocks or up on a prop so that you're not necessarily always, everybody goes straight to this, like, I'm going to fold all the way forward. For me, like, I don't really feel much of a stretch in my hip. I just feel like kind of what you're mentioning, this like pinchy, squeezy thing going on in the front side of the hip. So I'm curious if you have a preference either way. Yeah, I, most people, if you're not up on something, shin parallel to the front of the mat is like not in this lifetime for most people. Yeah, it's like 1%. Uh, <laughs> um, and people will tell me my knee hurts in pigeon a mm-hmm. lot. And what's happening there is that the knee is taking up the slack. So like you're asking more range of the hip than it actually has. Mm-hmm. Um, and you kind of making up for that with rotation at the knee, especially as we bring the shin forward. Right. And I, now I wish I could be showing you guys this. Yeah. Um, so if the knee is sore in pigeon, tucking the heel is definitely part of it. Okay. Um, but it is, it's good to be kind of all the way up on a, on a bolster or something like that. And I'm thinking of under your sit bones. Mm-hmm. So like I'm on that bolster, my one leg is in front of it, my other leg is back. Yeah. Um, so it's just requiring a little bit less external rotation of my hips. Um, and yeah, people don't need to go all the way forward. Forward, That's really a lot to ask of a hip. I feel a lot happier in it and it feels more effective if I'm up on a bolster and I stay upright and I just hang out in it rather than going right into the, I'm just going to close my eyes and lean forward and tuck everything in a way that I can just kind of collapse over the front leg. To me, it doesn't feel effective or good. It's so interesting to me that so many people go straight there. Yeah. And I wonder what they're actually feeling in that. It's always hard to know. And I, I think there's also um, 
the abduction in the front leg. So like, is my knee sort of, is my thigh straight forward for my body or out at an angle? Like, what is that angle there? Mm -hmm. um, and different things work for different people. Then there's sometimes the make sure that your sacrum is parallel to the ground, which like I see absolutely no reason why you should necessarily care. Mm -hmm. um, whatever feels like it's creating the stretch in your body, that's what you need. Okay, interesting. Versus if they were going to go into the back bend and bend the back leg, then we would want it. Then we would have to, yeah. yeah. That that makes it a whole different thing, yeah. right? Exactly. Um, and but even any version of pigeon, there are some people it's not accessible for. Like yeah. It's just kind of too much. On the back. Right, so yep. No um, body weight. Yeah. yeah, doing it, yeah, the figure four version on your back is often that's the right thing for some people. Yeah, interesting. It might be good to have you – I'm doing business right now. Sorry. Uh, when you come in and do our teacher training, it'd be great to have you maybe do a couple hours too on on injuries and how to how to help people prevent them, not just on, okay, this is what's going on in your body, but when you see people in the room being able to kind of know when they're going down a route that might be a disservice to them and how to give them some other options. That's something that we normally do in our training, but it might be nice having it come from you, uh, especially alongside the anatomy stuff. So Yeah. Make a mental note of that. Yes. It's, I do a lot of that, like every teacher training. Cool. It turns into like a little workshoppy thing where we'll like pick apart some awesomeness and like here are some issues that people might have in this and what we might do about that. Um, awesome. Yeah. I think in your, Jordan, in your teacher training, did we do it? I think I helped run the module like that where – I think we gave you guys, um, we put you into groups. It was really fun. And then one person had an injury that the other people didn't know about. And they had to like act out the symptoms and the injury. And then you had to discern as a teacher. Maybe you weren't there that day. You had to discern as a teacher of like, all right, can I see what might be going on in the body? Where are they going to need to modify? Where will they need props? It was kind of a fun little workshoppy way to do it. I love that. Yeah. Because yeah. a lot of times you don't, you don't know. The students might tell you they have one injury before class, but a lot of people have no idea. And you're looking out at a sea of people and you're like, I don't want to even get hurt. But Right. Well, yeah. you also like it's the limits of a group class in a way mm -hmm. is that in the bigger it is, the harder it is to serve every single person in that class sort of individually. Um, and yeah, people won't always tell you. Sometimes they might feel like embarrassed to talk about it. But mm -hmm. a lot of the time, I think they just don't think to bring it up or they don't have a space in which to do that um and then as yoga teachers like is it reasonable that after 200 hours we understand every single injury that right. can happen to a human body and <laughs> what to do about it like we just kind of have to understand where those limits are actually mm -hmm. too um and be willing to say oh maybe you need to go to the next level of specialization like maybe this is a thing to talk to a physical therapist about right, right. or a counselor when it's emotional stuff like when to punt sort of yeah, that's an interesting point when I, I when like it's that. emotional, not just physical. I just think in general that um, we always talk about how we're always students and wanting to continue learning. Um, and I think it's really easy for people to be like, oh, you're a yoga teacher. You know all the answers. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. 200 hours of nope. training. You know <laughs> right? right. And they think, you know, about mm. like nutrition and spirituality and like physical exercise. Like, you know, everything about mm. like healthy life. Um yeah, and like none of us know everything really realistically. So like, it, and I think too, as yoga teachers, like we really want to help, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so when someone asks us a question, like we really want to know what to say to help them. So it's hard for us to go, actually, I don't 
have the answer for you. Like I might need to pass you on to someone else. Like I need, you feel this like, oh, I want to help you, but I can't. Um, yeah, and then yeah. they look confused. What do you mean you don't know? <laughs> but you're my guru. You know everything. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any teachers that you look up to or study under? I am a person who moves around to different teachers, we honestly. Same, yeah. Because yeah. um, because I'm wary of putting someone on a pedestal and because I think all of us benefit when we learn different things from different people because mm-hmm. each person has their way of viewing things. Um, so it's good to get a new perspective. It's it's like when you travel outside the U.S. and you become really aware of how American you are, but you couldn't see those things before because mm-hmm. you were like in that system. Um, if you study with one teacher for a really long time, it might get hard to see like things from a different perspective. Like you don't even get the ways in which you're inside that system until you go to a different one and look at it from a new perspective. That was so eye-opening for me. I had no idea the rigid little cloudy bubble that I was in until I started to move outside of it. And then this whole world broke open. And I was like, oh, I have a lot more to offer than I've been tapping into because I've been underneath this one system and this one way of being, which at the time I thought was for me. And then now that I'm outside of it, I go, oh, that actually exacerbated all of the dark sides of me that I didn't like. And it took for me to kind of venture out to styles and and teachers of yoga that in the past I would have looked at and went, "Mm, that's not yoga. I used to be one of those people that would say that. Now I don't feel that way at all. I think it's all (laughs) yoga, all of it. And and it's just what doorway you're going to go through and who you're going to connect with. And that's what's been so interesting for me about the partner practice and acro is like 10 years ago, I would have laughed at you. I would have been yeah. like, no, that's circus tricks. I That's not yoga to me. I have no desire to do that. And now it's such a huge part of not only my practice, but like the way that I'm able to communicate and connect with students. We were just teaching a acro class at UW today and it was so exciting to see the room packed with students half of which who have never taken with us before and I know how intimidating it can be to start college and feel like you have no friends and you're not sure what your degree is going to be and you just feel like bottled out right you feel like no grounding and then you come into a space where you get to connect with people and trust and maybe fly and it's just like to me that's so yoga but 10 years ago I never would have thought that yeah but it really takes I think opening your mind up to new teachers and new styles of yoga and different pathways because that's how you connect with who you are as a teacher if you only go under one study and one umbrella like you're just parroting your teacher you you haven't really developed who you are until you step outside of that and you start to explore other stuff and then you take all these tidbits from your first teachers that you love and then the new ones and you start to piece it all together into the framework of who you are and what you want to offer and I think it's pretty exciting yeah I think that's important for life in general Mm -hmm. we tend to like read a new book and be like, oh, this book is the truth. This is the book. Yes. Yes. I I am now this book and Mm -hmm. I think that this is the right way of living. And if you don't read another book, then that book stays your thought process. And then you read another book that contradicts it and has a bunch of good valid points. And you're like, oh, wait, maybe that other book wasn't the end all be all perfect book. And you continue to learn. I feel like we tend to do that too much. We have to give ourselves permission to try things on too. Mm -hmm. Like to try it out and go, oh, what would it be like to really dive into this? And then fits it doesn't fit and but then give ourselves permission to change like not to put ourselves in a box yeah um 
And I love that you said it's all yoga. It's, it's totally all, all yoga. yoga. Like, what isn't yoga, really, if you get down to it? Like, yeah, we're just there's connecting. a hashtag that's been floating around on Facebook recently is hashtag that's not yoga. And I'm like, no, it it is. It all is. Even if it looks ugly and causes controversy and there's a challenge in it, it are you connecting to it? Is there a way to work through it? Are you going to grow from it? Then it's yoga. And everything's a teacher. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, and like, you know, some people are sort of offended by like goat yoga and like right. wine yoga. They're like, that's not yoga. Like, of course it is. You're connecting to some aspect of who you are. Yeah, and if you don't want a stinky goat to poop on your mat when you're doing yoga, then don't go to goat yoga. Exactly. Like not everything <laughs> okay, has to be for you. Yeah. It's okay if something works for somebody and doesn't work for you. That's mm -hmm. fine. Yeah, my challenge is getting the people who are so stuck in styles like Bikram, the repetition of doing the same thing over and over. My challenge is like in inspiring them to come outside of that and be like, hey, I know you've been doing the same thing a lot and you feel comfortable with that and you feel like you're winning and you really enjoy it, but come check this out and come try this out and just see – um, what else is out there. And then if you want to go back to that repetition and doing the same thing over and over, that's fine. But I, I really try to encourage people to see what else is out there and including teachers. Like we have people who come to us and we're their teachers. They go through our training, but a big part of our training is go take other classes, learn from other teachers, write about it, let us know what you thought um, and encouraging them to go outside of what we're teaching. Yeah, yeah. totally. And I try to do that myself. Like, and, you know, I've taken like some Bikram classes. Like I've just tried to explore what there is in the yoga world to at least have some familiarity with all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Although it's then it's really hard to like not get judgy about the ways that people are cueing because sometimes I'll hear cues that just really make me cringe and I have to be like, oh, dear. I think it's okay to cringe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because you're coming from a place of safety. Yes. Right? Yeah, because I'm just thinking, knowledge. oh, there's people in this room who are going to do that every time they do this pose and, like, they don't understand that they're, they're, they're hurting themselves. Hurt. And it takes a long time. Like, the, the sort of chronic yoga injuries, mm -hmm. it takes a decade often or more. So you don't really get what you're doing to yourself until later. Do you have a strategy for that? Let's say you're going to a studio and you hear these – issues over and over do you approach the teacher do you go to management and be like hey i would love to offer a training to your teachers to go over some things because i've noticed and you don't have to call anyone out but i've noticed some alignment issues that could cause major injuries for your students maybe that's something we talk about i mean is that something you Ooh, go that's for? a good idea i've always i feel very like it's hard to know what to do with it because mm -hmm. if you would approach someone after class and go like oh the way you were cueing mm -hmm. the rotation of the shoulders is probably gonna hurt people like what you normally would be met with is defensiveness mm -hmm. um or no this is how I was told to do it and it's therefore right and you are not right um so it like I have not found the key that always breaks that open although sometimes if you like drop hints about that that's like my thing um people ask and then you get an op opportunity to talk about it more yeah but yeah and I there's not always time for that I mean a lot of teachers are in and out or you're in and out and um but I know, like, if that was me, I would totally go a step above that. Not rat anybody out, but maybe go to management and be like, hey, I've noticed this with some of your teachers. I would love to offer what I do and um, make all of these yoga spaces, I don't know, a healing place rather than allowing injury and um, a lot. You know they don't want that, right? They oh, of course. They want their student teachers to be educated and on all of that anatomical cues and 
um, yeah, not a ton of teachers are super receptive right after their class. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, I get it too. Yeah. It's also like a lot of times students are demanding their teacher's time yeah. too, and yeah. it, it can be really like there's a time issue there. Mm-hmm. And in public, too, right? If I would talk to someone after their class, like, I have to do it in front of their students, which yeah. makes it a whole new can of worms. Yeah. I would think that it would be challenging to go to some public classes just for that reason. I know Jordan and I both at times have had a challenge going to studio classes, to festival classes, where five minutes in, we're like, oh, man, this is kind of a shit show. Like, there, someone's going to get hurt or what is – what is going on in this? Like, why are they sequencing in this way? Like, what is what is even happening? And and, and it's tricky because it's really easy to go into that place of not necessarily judgment, but more so concern. Yes. Like, I start to look around at the students like, ah, like I want to help them and take care of them. Right. And I'm like, well, this is not my class. And it's a tricky boundary with that. It's really hard. Yeah. And then, you know, it gets even trickier if you, they're cueing you in a way that doesn't work for your body you know isn't good for your body so you're kind of doing it your way they come over and they try to adjust you into their way and you know you have to kind of go no this is what works for me i just say this no thank you yeah (laughs) and i go no 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 i go no thank you a little louder and they're like okay yes (laughs) i'm like i'm good i know it works for me thank you though i do appreciate like not many studios have this but i appreciate when they do are little chips that you can put on your mat that are like, do not physically adjust me today. Like for any reason whatsoever, today I don't want to be That's touched. That's a great idea. We should do that. Or you can even have it be, you have to, you put the thing on if you're okay with being touched. So mm-hmm. you have to opt in, right? Like mm-hmm. I kind of feel like on a consent level, like we should have to affirmatively say, yes, it's okay. So you put that there. And then if you change your mind in the middle of your class, you just tuck it under your mat. And That's a no, fantastic no more touching. idea. Just buy a bunch of chips. Let's say gravity lift on them. Yeah, gravity lift. <laughs> Let's do gravity lift poker chips. Yeah, people are gonna want those. I mean, hot commodities are gonna take them home. <laughs> I guess we could let them take them home. We just put our website on the other side. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> but I think it's a great idea, and consent is so important. And a lot of times, it's really easy to forget, or you offer that up in the beginning of class, and you see people not necessarily wanting to be that one person that says no thank you and so a lot of times if I do ask I'll have them do it when they're in child's pose or on their back and so they're not feeling like singling themselves out in front of everybody like no I'm I'm that one person that's feeling awkward today and doesn't want to be touched because most people want adjustments Um, I actually don't do a lot of adjusting do you yeah, barely at all. And what I almost never do is deepening adjustment. So I'll I'll do some alignment. Like if, if when I say it verbally, it doesn't land with them, then I'll, you know, show people what I mean kind of in their bodies. Um, but I do not use my body to apply leverage to another body to make it be a shape I think it should be able to be. <laughs> hallelujah. Hallelujah. You know, I get a lot of people who don't quite get that like Jordan and I both feel that way and we teach that in our trainings we teach them how to adjust verbally how to come over and do subtle alignment adjustments but we don't teach any deepening um adjustments at all and we've thought about saving that for continuing ed for people who are already teachers but even still I don't know that anybody really needs to be doing that like I'll do some deepening stuff with private clients who I know well and I see on a regular basis and we can have the whole conversation during it. There isn't a class distracting me from 
tuning in and feeling mm-hmm. what's going on. And it's really interesting because there's so many people who just want to be touched. They want you to come over, rub your their shoulders and put them into something really deep. And you can tell they're just like, ooh, ooh, come and adjust well, me. They're, they're sensation chasing, right? Because yeah. like um, when you have a really deep stretch, it is an intense sensation. And like people want to feel that, right? They want to quote unquote feel the stretch. Um, So they're like wanting you to push it for them. Even if it's bad for them, like still they kind of want it sometimes. Um, And then I do kind of feel like our society is touch deprived. So, so many people live alone or they just don't have anyone in their life that they regularly are touching. And it is a human need, right? To cuddle others. Um, So I, I struggle with that a little bit. Because I know that people really kind of need it on That's some where we level. Just encourage them to come to our acro class. Yeah. <laughs> like, hey, if you want human connection and touch, come there. But I'm not necessarily going to walk around in a room full of 30 people, especially ones that are like uber sweaty or I've never had you before. And I'm not going to just sit there and push and manipulate your body into something just because you're like, ooh, this will feel more interesting or you know like you said chasing more of that sensation so I appreciate your outlook on that and we both feel that way it doesn't seem to be the common thread around here though I see a lot of teachers doing really big adjustments um, all the time and I see a lot of people getting hurt by them too like I most yoga teachers I know have at some point been hurt by someone adjusting them deeper than their body could go yeah um Yeah. So it's just not helpful. And like, is it an effective way to work with a body realistically? Like if I push you deeper in a pose, then you can go on your own. Like, have I taught you anything? Not really. Like you still aren't going to go there on your own. So all I've done is possibly injure you. And what good has come of this? Not much. Other than you become a little dependent on your teacher Mm -hmm. as a student. If you like really want those adjustments. Now I can't do a home practice. I have to go to class because I need my adjustments. Um, and but that's not really what we're going for, right? Ideally, as a teacher, when I'm teaching, even in a private setting, right, what I want is that person to learn how to move their own body mm-hmm. and not to be dependent on me. Exactly. That's why we try to get people to go through our 200 hour. It's like it's less about us trying to bring more teachers into the world. Yeah. Like if you want to be a teacher, sure, we'll teach you how to be a teacher. But also we want to teach you how to know your body better because by getting to know these people on a much deeper basis we can then give them adjustments that are specifically for their body in a way that we know that they have consent like it just it works so much better because it's almost like a private one-on-one although you're with a group of people you get to know them well enough yeah Yeah. you get a lot of one-on-one time i know that when i went through my 500 hour as a student there was a module that was um advanced adjustments or whatever you would call it and i think i was the only one that walked away from that weekend i remember talking to you about it after i walked away from it feeling like I didn't get anything because I was like, we spent the whole time doing deep physical adjustments, which I know I will never do. I'm, right? I'm not, I'm not interested in that. That is not helpful to me. And um, if anything, it rather than teaching me what I was going to go do, it taught me to really stand strong in the fact that I think verbal adjustments are very important and they're, and they're challenging as a teacher to figure out how to use your energetic adjustments and your your voice and your words in order to get people across the room or uh, maybe just a few people in the room or maybe everybody to understand the little things that need to adjust without me physically coming over and doing it. And I remember at the end of that module, 
there was the Shavasana adjustment and everyone was like, oh, it's my favorite. Oh, it's my favorite. And I was the only one in the room that was like, I do not like being adjusted in Shavasana. And they were like, what? Oh my God, <laughs> it feels so good. And I love the massages. And I was like, think about all the time somebody has adjusted you in Shavasana when you were perfectly comfortable. They came and moved your body around and now you feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Right. Or the worst is when they're going through everyone in class and then they're getting down to that final row, which is where you are. You've been in your chill, like meditative, blissful land for five minutes. Somebody comes over, doesn't alert you with their energetic pre presence and just touches you and you feel yeah. startled. And now you're completely out of your meditation. And I'm like, really? totally. I, really? I got fully skipped once. <gasps> you did. <laughs> I could hear. And that's the other thing is like you're you're mentally thinking, all right, I hear them on that person and then that person <laughs> yeah. and then that person. So they're coming around to me soon. And then, okay, they're at that person. They're almost next to me. And then straight walked right by me one time. And I was like, hmm. Because <laughs> right? I am one of those people who likes an adjustment yeah. in Shavasana in theory. Yeah. And then once you like actually think about all the stuff that you just laid out, you're like, oh, wait, maybe that isn't the most beneficial thing. It's just sensation chasing. Yeah. You're like I got a sensation, whether they used, you know, a scented oil or you know, they were rubbing your forehead, like, like mm -hmm. I got some sort of sensation. And so for me early on as a teacher, like I always wanted to go give people an adjustment in Shavasana in some way. And for me, it's always anatomically based. It's like, oh, that person looks like their low back is hurting. So I'm going to try to, you know, lower their shoulders underneath their back a little bit more or their toes are rigid and pointing straight up. So I try to like loosen their feet out a little wider. But the more I learn, the more it's like, let those people find it on their own and maybe reach out to them after be like, you know, do you want a little helpful hint on how to relax deeper rather than like physically forcing their body to do something in there? Like, wait, what? Why are yep. you moving me yeah. like this? Because it's really different for everybody. I think a common adjustment in Shavasana is the feet, right? Like, oh, I'm going to rotate your ankles out a little bit and find this quote unquote hip opening, right? Where the femur spirals outward in the hip socket. And we were in Bali uh, for our level two acro vinyasa training and Sammy was there from Jakarta from Jakarta and he's this amazing healer like I don't know what he does but he's amazing and he came over and we were just workshopping stuff right it wasn't a class and he asked if he could put me into kind of his way of doing shavasana and the way he aligned my bones was amazing and I was laying there going oh my gosh I feel so comfortable and so good but it was totally different than anyone around here has adjusted me in shavasana right he like rolled my thigh bones inward slightly so my feet were pointing straight up but my legs were inactive he just like set the bones in a way that they stayed and kind of adjusted through the arms and through the spine and all of a sudden I laid there and I was like oh like interesting it was just very different and again like I don't know that that would be feasible in a class or even warranted but maybe with a private client it would be something really interesting to play around with um that dude was a wizard though <laughs> <laughs> he like fixed my shoulder and oh. my toe remember when we when I crushed yeah. my toe she basically like broke her toe couldn't walk on it for two days and he comes over and just like messes with it with his hands and when he was done she was like oh i'm good we can't even what? really communicate with the guy we he, barely speaks he barely english. speaks english she he just kind of pointed and i pointed and he's like okay and sit down and did some stuff on the top of my foot did something in the ball of my foot did something to my toe like really minute movements right there was no pushing or pulling and then he was like okay do this and i wiggle and i could wiggle i hadn't been able to wiggle my toe for two days i had no movement over it and then all of a sudden i wiggled it the swelling went down within a couple hours i was walking on it i was like oh 
okay. I have no idea what you did. I love that. That's You're magic. Crazy. Yeah. There's more in heaven and earth, right? Like so many things happen that we do not understand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love it. I, and I'm willing to, I don't need him to teach me his secrets. I'm willing to have magical secrets. <laughs> I, I, I love it. I like, I just trusting that you know the way. Yeah. He's like this, what? Four foot ten. He's tiny. Jacardin man. I love who's it. Who's like, he does IT for a living, but like has these just magical what? finger touch. That's yeah. crazy. I had no idea. Yeah. I thought his actual profession was some sort of a healer. <laughs> so I have no this way. other little hobby, you know. <laughs> <laughs> He's just an IT dude. Wow. I know. It's great. Okay. Okay. We have to go visit him. Yeah. Have you ever been over to like Bali or Jakarta? Or I have not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is coming though. Yeah. We've done Bali a couple of times. It's pretty epic. I just came back from Cambodia, Ooh. Laos, and Vietnam. Yeah. How was that? Amazing. Did amazing. you bike ride? Keep, we did. I keep yeah. hearing we have to bike ride in Vietnam. Oh, we to- yes. And it was totally crazy. And like in the big city, like we were in Hanoi, there's no way I would have ridden a bike. Like I barely could walk down the street. Um, but out in the little villages, like, oh my gosh, it was so magical. Were you yeah. there on a retreat or with No, your family? family. Yeah. Oh. It was a family one. Oh, how was so traveling fun. that far with the kids? How has that been? Awesome. Yeah, they're, I mean, they're used to it. So the flight itself, like, used to be a bigger challenge. Um, but now they're old enough that, like, they don't get that much iPad at home. So when they're on a plane, they're like, oh, my God, I can watch movies for hours. Um, so yeah. it's awesome. And, yeah, they're they're just flexible and they love it. So, yeah, they're awesome. Yeah. I, I think a lot of people get really intimidated by traveling with their kids. Like, they think it's going to be a massive hassle. Um but it's my thing that I love. And like after I had my baby, I was like, oh, I'm not going to be able to travel. Then I was like, wait, they let babies on planes. I'm pretty <laughs> sure they let babies go on planes. Just don't put them in the overhead <laughs> compartment. You just like, and you know, at that point in your life, like mm-hmm. even your home daily life is a big hassle. So it's like I can have a hassle here or I can have a hassle in Greece. Mm-hmm. Like Greece sounds better. Um, so, yeah, you just you can make it happen. And the difference between doing it once, if you do it once every five years, yeah, it's probably going to be a struggle to deal with your kids in another country. (laughs) But if you do it regularly and they're, you know, used to that adventure and they've been flying on a plane their entire life, Mm -hmm. they'll be fine. It opened up so much conversation, especially that particular part of the world, um, because there's still, you know, some suffering, right? Some poverty and animal suffering and and things. Um, And it, it opens up a conversation around like our privilege here and how we can use that privilege to make the world better and how we can keep our hearts open because I, I think a lot of us see suffering and we want to like close the doors right shut it out because it sucks um but if you want to love fully you got to take that pain like you have to you're open or you're not open you can't be halfway yeah. um so we kind of were working with that and like letting it be sad sometimes and doing what we could so important to let your kids feel sad Oh, yeah. Especially the Completely. boys. Completely. Especially the boys. Yes. I definitely um, think that that's slowly evolving, but there was a challenge, I think, for my son in some ways growing up with me and his sister, right? He had all this feminine energy, and then he had males in his life being like, oh, well, he cries a lot, or he's like really sensitive, or, you know, he needs to be tougher. And I'm like, no, he's good. Like, he's yeah. good. He's actually able to feel, which. As you start to age, you might go, oh, yeah, I didn't allow myself to feel. And how is that festering in my body and my relationships? And um, 
Yeah, it's so interesting how we want to shield and protect our kids from all of these things, but it just really does a disservice for them not to see suffering or um, process pain or sadness or um, having these empathetic moments. Um, I've seen it a lot actually in my colleagues who are still in medicine mm -hmm. and like they're people who live in shells, kind of like emotional shells. And because you, you get in contact with so much suffering and if you decide like, oh, I'm going to kind of make a shell so that I don't have to feel that. I mean, then you go home and like you can't take it off, right? You're just like you're a person in a shell. Um, and I think a lot of people don't see that that's what's happening or understand that you can't shut out suffering without shutting out love and joy too. Mm -hmm. Like it's kind of all or nothing. Do you ever miss that that Western med world? Do you ever wish that you can? Take I mean, it? sometimes, but I I would have to be like I'm a healer mm -hmm. by my nature, um, but I needed to be really on my own terms, sort of, because the the way that the medical system is set up, it it doesn't support a the wellness of the doctors or you know any of the practitioners within it, um, and b it doesn't give them freedom to like spend time with people and heal them and see them on all levels. Um, everyone's too busy, too stressed. Like they're That's interesting that you put it that way because I think from the patient perspective, it's really easy to put that on the doctor. But oh, what I you're know, saying, yeah. it's the overall system. And so how, in what ways do you think that the doctors aren't being supported to be able to do those things? I mean, they're, they schedule, like doctors are scheduled by somebody else, almost never by themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and so the insurance company or, you know, your practice manager goes, okay, you have eight minutes with this person, right? Or 12 or whatever it is. Um, and wow. it's not enough time, right? And so like the doctor you want is the one who's running behind always um, because they're actually taking the time with each person. And they're not, it's not like they're being paid extra to go home two hours late that night, right? But they're like, that's okay. I'm going to take the time with each person. I know it's frustrating for people, right? But doctors don't make their own schedules um, and they're being asked to just cram so much in. Then they have to fight with insurance companies to get the treatments that their patients actually need. Um, and they're not being given the space where they can ask the real questions, right? Because like, I can throw medicine at you. It might do something. Right. Um, but how are you sleeping? And how are you feeling in your relationships? And like, how are you feeling about food? And are you eating, you know, the right things that feel good for your body? Like, you don't have time in a few minutes to do all that stuff. Um, so yeah, it was frustrating for me. And I couldn't stay there. Yeah. Have you thought about other ways that you could practice medicine that are on your terms other I've, than other than yoga? Yeah, I mean, I've sort of explored it a little bit. Um, but there's there's like not a lot of people who walk in the two worlds kind of. Mm -hmm. So like Western medicine is a fortress and then like naturopathy is a fortress and they don't like each other at all. Um, so it turns out like if I wanted to be a naturopathic doctor, I'd have to do school again, like pretty mm -hmm. much all of it that's not happening. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I just, I just haven't found what that looks like, I guess. I do quite a lot of private yoga um, and it's often around someone's injury or illness and like working with that. So hmm. it's a form of it. It's yeah. not completely it. Um, you yeah. just have to figure out a way to create that system for yourself so that their insurance can cover it so that they yeah. can say, I'm going to this private practice doctor who also is going to do yoga type things with me and maybe things that are a little bit less Western focused, but it doesn't right. matter because the insurance company still looks at it as, okay, this is her, her office and the way yeah. she runs it. Interesting. It is, it is hard to create 
So I'm yeah. I'm open to possibilities, but I haven't found it yet. And like, I wish there were more of us who kind of walk in the Western and Eastern worlds at the same time, if you know what I mean. Because mm-hmm. um, I feel like we need that. And those two worlds tend to, people pick one. Um, and a lot of yoga people, like they do not like Western medicine. And yoga people is like a really, I don't know, it sounds like a bad term. But I've, I've met quite a few people in teacher trainings who are like, I hate Western medicine. It's terrible. All they do is throw pills at you. And like, um, and sometimes that is kind of what you're getting. But technology has a lot to offer us. And like you've experienced that, right? I'm, all of us have at some point, like our lives have been made better by this technology that we have. Um, but it's like, can we use it appropriately? And can we understand ourselves more fully and only use it when we need it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We as humans tend to be overly tribal in yes. the sense that like we pick what we think is right and we stick to it. And so whether that's, you know, Western medicine or, Nat- or naturopathy or you have, you know, one specific type of yoga, like, oh, I do Ashtanga or I do Iyengar, like, or I do Vinyasa, like all these different things. People stick to it and they're like, oh, this is my thing. Yes. And I'm with this group of people and we're yeah. different than that group of people. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, no, you're not. And if you're able to kind of like combine those two, how do you find the best parts of that for you specifically? Yeah. And that's kind of been like my specific journey in life, which is come about through trying to heal myself but how do you find the best things for you i think that's what we're all kind of looking for but we really get stuck in this idea of like i'm along with this team yeah like but what about the other team it could help you too yeah i I don't need to pick one it's like maybe a human instinct in a way because most tribes they do that this is how we dress they dress differently than us this is what we they eat other things like Mm -hmm. and so we're our instinct is like maybe to define ourselves in opposition to other groups of people, but we are evolving mm-hmm. and we can find new ways of doing things. Yeah. 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 Interesting. I like it. I've, I've encountered a few Eastern med doctors who are like, Hey, we're going to start with this route. And just so you know, ahead of time, if these things don't work, I'm going to refer you to the Western med side of things because I do think there's importance there. And, so yeah, if we can all just figure out how to get along, yes, <laughs> be a collaborative effort. That was uh, what I really loved when I was focusing more on personal training is I would really try to find the network within the client. So my client would come to me and they also have an acupuncturist and they also have, you know, a regular doctor or a PT or um, a chiropractor. And I'm like, here's my number, here's my email, send it to them, have them let me know what's going on with you, I'll communicate on my end, and this is a team effort. I don't think there's one way for us at all. We're way too complicated. (laughs) Totally. We're always looking for that one pill that's going to fix us, fix everything. Like, you know, I, I would have, some patients are like, my doctor never asked me about my life, I wish they would talk to me about more stuff than just throwing pills at me. But then you'd have patients who would come like, you know, they're like, okay, I have this problem. And you're like, well, maybe if you didn't drink 12 sodas a day and you slept more than four hours a night, like that would probably get better. And then I get, I did not come here for a lecture. Okay. I just want the pill that will fix my problem. Like the bachelor's on in 20 minutes and I need to be home. Um, 
like people just want they want there to be a magic pill and they sort of assume that you have one that you're just withholding from them so you can lecture them uh, right? yeah interesting yeah there's there's two sides of it I guess because I do know a lot of people who want that quick fix and then other people who are like no like take the time get to know me don't just hand me a pill like figure out what the fuck is wrong with me please right. and occasionally you, you you have people who are on the other side of that who are like I will never take a pill mm -hmm. right and like sometimes that isn't the right answer either I tend like, to we... be more like that I'm trying to become more open but I'm very yeah if a doc I almost get not defensive but skeptical if a doctor is very quick to prescribe me something well, I don't think that it's okay to be skeptical but mm -hmm. just like open to the possibility that maybe it's the right thing for you some yeah. of the time yeah yeah for sure always a journey always do you have any Last little tidbits you want to ask of us or that you want to share with us. I don't know. Any any words that you want to get out to the people listening? Just find your path. Yeah. Your own beautiful, complicated self, right? Out in the world. Like it just let it be a journey and it's okay to change and explore and grow. Yeah. You're on a pretty epic path. Thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Love you guys. So awesome. All right. On that. Bye. <laughs> thanks for listening to the gravity lift podcast with jordan and antonella if you like our show and want to find more check out our website at gravitylift.space and when you get a sec please rate and review us on itunes to help us spread these vibes far and wide 